So I pray it would be our hearts renewed in this and stirred and, and blessed in every way. So we give you this time to study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 53, we just began to look at it last week. And of course, this chapter speaks of the suffering Messiah. And matter of fact, Isaiah, which is quoted oftentimes in the New Testament, particularly when you go to the gospel narratives, that uh, a lot of Isaiah is quoted as Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah in his first coming. But as you go to the New Testament, Isaiah chapter 53 is quoted more than any other chapter that the book of Isaiah um, is referenced to in the New Testament. And so chapter 53, speaking of Jesus coming, the suffering Messiah, and as I mentioned to you last time, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders who knew every dot and tittle of the Old Testament, they couldn't quite figure out, is Messiah going to come and be a suffering Messiah? And Isaiah also would speak of a reigning Messiah. So they had different ideas. They thought perhaps that two Messiahs would come. One would be suffering, would be reigning. They thought if Israel was worthy enough that uh, it would be the reigning Messiah that would come. But uh, if we're not worthy enough, then the suffering Messiah was going to come. And that's one of the reasons why scholars believe that the Pharisees were so determined that everybody kept the Sabbath perfectly. Because they believed that if Israel kept the Sabbath perfectly, then the reigning Messiah would come. And we know that the people were looking for, for Jesus to, to usher in the kingdom of God. As you see Jesus coming into Jerusalem there in this triumphal entry, we know that, that Luke's narrative tells us that they were expecting the kingdom of God to be ushered in immediately. But Jesus, they didn't understand this. Even the disciples, as Jesus said, that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And they didn't understand that. They were confused about that. And even as Jesus came into Jerusalem, they're, they're waving the palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were expecting him to usher in the kingdom, to overthrow Rome. That's what they were looking for Messiah to do, to free us from the Roman oppression and the Roman yoke. And Rome's going to get theirs, but it would be later in the week when they realized that he wasn't going to do that, that he came to, to free us from something greater than any bondage of Rome or, or any man could put on us. That is the bondage of sin. We needed to be free from sin, the suffering Messiah coming and dying for you and for me. And so they would cry out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. So here it spoke of that. And in chapter 53 is absolutely an incredible chapter, 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, speaking of suffering Messiah. And we know that in Acts chapter 8, that that Ethiopian eunuch that was there in his chariot is reading Isaiah chapter 53 when Philip was sent to him. And the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, is it speaking of the prophet or somebody else? So Philip was able to, to witness to him him and 
told him that it was fulfilled by Jesus. So we know that chapter 53 is speaking of Jesus specifically. And then the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. He got baptized, went back to Ethiopia. And, and that's where Christianity would begin to spread throughout that part of Africa. So in chapter 53 of Isaiah, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. For he has no form or comeliness that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So the people refused to listen to the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus actually quotes verse 1 here in John chapter 12, verse 38, for you note-takers, speaking of how the people didn't believe him. And of course, people today, they, they do the same thing. They don't believe that Jesus came, and they don't care or don't want to hear about it, that Jesus came and died for their sins. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that on Sunday as we continue through Romans chapter 1, that there are those who suppress the truth, but the, the people of Jesus' day and, and his own brethren were rejecting him, and who shall believe our report, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes on to say that, that Jesus, there was no form or comeliness that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And Jesus, of course, being a Jewish man, would be an ordinary looking Jewish man. We have no physical description of Jesus. Jesus in the scriptures, the only hint that we might have is when the religious leaders would say to Jesus that you're not but 50 years old. They're arguing with him there in, in John chapter 8. Uh, Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, really? You're not but 50 years old. Jesus, of course, was a little over 30 years old, so maybe he looked older than what he really was. So here they are, you know, saying comments like that, but he wasn't, you know, glowing in the dark. He didn't have a halo over him. You know, he wasn't shining. The only time he was shining was on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he was a Jewish man, but in verse 2 here, there are some scholars that link this maybe to verse 3 and what we read previously in chapter 52, that his appearance uh, was marred more than any other man, his form more than any other of the sons of men. In other words, Jesus, as we have seen, as the lamb that was led to the slaughter, as we're going to read here, the one that they pulled out his beard, that uh, they, uh, he did not hide his cheeks from them. Um, they, they punched him. They pulled out his beard. They put that crown of thorns on him. Uh, they beat him. They uh, put that cat of nine tails on him. And as he would stand before the crowds, right before he was told that, you're going to take the cross as Pilate would wash his hands and give the orders to have him be crucified. That Pilate said, behold the man. Look at him. Look what has happened to him. Marred more than any other man. That perhaps it's linked to that there's no form or comeliness. That when we see him, there's no uh, you know, beauty that we desire him. And, and you know, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. People would look away. Because it was so hideous the way he went through. And so Jesus going to the cross, we continue reading in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What we read in verse 3 is that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he knows the sorrow and the grief that you are going through. And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that he's our sympathetic high priest. And maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you have sorrow. Maybe you're grieving in, in your heart for uh, over a loss of somebody, or maybe a relationship that's been broken or severed. Maybe circumstances that you're going through that have been very, very difficult. I want you to know this, because sometimes we think, Lord, do you see me? And do you know what I'm going through? And the Lord says, I'm a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he knows your sorrow. He knows your grief. He knows everything about you. You see, I can sympathize with you. I, I can hurt for you, but I don't know exactly what it is that you're going through, but Jesus does. And I want you to know that he loves you and he's with you and his promises are true for you. And as you turn to him, he's the sympathetic, compassionate high priest that as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we can go to the throne of grace in time of need. So he knows the sorrow and the grief that you're experiencing. And he took that as he borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken and, and Jesus came to set us free so that one day we're going to be free from the suffering that we experience, the pain on this side of eternity. He took the wrath that you and I deserved. As he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised. That word means that he was crushed. He, he took the scourging so that we may be healed, as verse uh, 5 goes on to say. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement for our peace was upon him. By stripes we were healed. Now, commentators and Bible teachers divide on this. There are some that look at this, that uh, as that verse, verse 6 here, that by his stripes we are healed, is quoted a couple times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew's gospel in verses 16 and 17 of Matthew chapter 8, speaking about when Jesus was bringing physical healing to the people. This is quoted. So there are those who come along and say, well, this is speaking of physical healing. Now, Jesus, uh, you know, the Lord God still heals today. We can pray for healing. I believe that, that uh, we as Christians, that we come to him, we, we pray for that. But we also know that he does not heal in every instance, does he? But I'll tell you this, that physical healing will come to us eventually. Oh, we're all going to pass away. And sometimes when loved ones or others are sick, we pray for them. They have cancer. They have a disease. Whatever is going on, um, they're afflicted physically, and we pray for that healing, but it doesn't come. But we can rejoice in this, that God has healed them and taken them home. And that we're going to get new physical resurrected bodies. And that's so glorious. And, and yes, we grieve. But he knows our sorrows because he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And you remember that Jesus there at the tomb of Lazarus, as Lazarus was there for four days, and, and Jesus came. And Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the grave, and yet it says that Jesus wept, and he sighed deep within his spirit, is what John's gospel tells us. And I think that Jesus did that because he's grieving for his friend, and just the whole idea of death is kind of like it wasn't supposed to be this way. But Adam sinned. And death and sin has come into the world. And he says to Lazarus' sisters who were there with him that I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in him, though he may die, he shall live. And that's the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can have that hope in our hearts even when we have loved ones that we prayed for that perhaps weren't healed at that time, that the Lord eventually and ultimately heals them when he takes them home. And we're all going to be healed where we have new resurrected bodies. But I believe that primarily what this is speaking of is what Peter writes about in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, that it, it speaks of, of spiritual healing. Peter writes this, that who himself bore our sins, this is chapter 2, verse 24, in his own body on the tree that is on the cross, that we haven't died to sins, might live for righteousness, whose by stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So spiritual healing, as, as he took the... the the, the sufferings uh, that he went through and hung on the cross at Calvary that you and I could be healed spiritually. But as we continue in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It, you know, as uh, we read this in, in verse 7, Pilate was frustrated because Jesus kept silent because he didn't defend himself. And Pilate, being frustrated, he would say to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to let you go? And Jesus looked at Pilate and he says, you have no power over me, except what's been given to you by my Father. And so Pilate, as he heard that, was being told by Jesus that I am freely and willingly and voluntarily, because of my love, going to go to the cross. I'm going to take on the cup of suffering and death as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, opened not his mouth. He, he could have just spoken as he told Peter there in the garden and 12 legions of angels could have come down. 76,000 angels could have descended upon the garden, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the whole world. He was perfectly within his rights as God to do that, but he didn't do it because of his love for you and me. Peter, I'm going to take on the cup of suffering and death that the Father has given me to take. And you see, it wasn't those nails that kept him up on that cross. It was his love for you. They mocked him and they said, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. The first part of that statement of the religious leaders as they were mocking Jesus there on the cross, uh, others he, he saved, they couldn't deny that. People were healed. People, you know, were, were miracles took place. They could not deny that. But then they went on and they said, himself he cannot save. He could have come down from the cross again, just simply spoken. But he didn't. 
because he set his face to go to Jerusalem, that you and I might be with him. I pray that we never lose that, that, that truth in our hearts because sometimes we can go through life, Lord, do you see me again? Do you love me? If you ever doubt the love of God for you, go to the cross. Because not only does his word declare to you that he loves you, but it was proven to you as Jesus went to the cross to die for you. And then in verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of his people, he was stricken. So not only was he beaten, but he was cut off. That speaks of that he would physically die on the cross. Jesus breathed his last it was a physical death that Jesus went through on the cross, dying for you and for me. And then verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So he would die with two criminals on each side of him. And of course, at first, they would mock him as we read the gospel narratives. But then uh, we know that Luke's gospel gives us some information that one of those uh, criminals would throw himself at the mercy of Jesus and say, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, before the sun has set, you'll be with me in paradise. But Jesus was crucified with those criminals. And then what is interesting here is here's a prophecy that with the rich at his death, um, speaking of his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. You see, crucified victims were not treated with respect back then. Usually what would happen is they would sometimes in other parts, in Jerusalem at that time, the Sabbath was coming. So the religious leaders we know wanted to get those criminals, you know, the crucified victims off the cross uh, before the Sabbath came, before the feast was to take place. But in other parts of the world, you know, the, when they crucified somebody, sometimes they left them there on the cross for days just for the bodies to rot. In Jerusalem, it's recorded by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that what they would do is they would take crucified victims and throw them in the garbage heap in the Gehenna Valley. And the dogs would come and the wild jackals and the birds would come and tear the, the corpse apart. That's what they did with crucified victims. And it was Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man of the council, even as Isaiah 53 says, the one who was rich would take care of his grave. He came and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Again, when we talk about the gospel, even in 1 Corinthians 15, that this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and he rose again after three days according to the scriptures. That's the gospel message. The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, taking our iniquities upon himself for our transgressions, that he was crushed, that he was bruised. He was crucified on that cross. And then part of the gospel message is that he was buried. We don't always think about that. Sometimes that kind of gets skipped over. He died a physical death, and, and it's such a wonderful touching story because here is Joseph of Arimathea, a council member who was rich, who was a secret disciple, as John's gospel tells us, along with who else? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the master teacher of Israel, the one who came to Jesus at night, and Jesus said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. They asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, it was uh, 
Joseph of Arimathea that had a tomb that was hewn out of the rock close to Golgotha where Jesus died. When we go to Israel, we will go to that place where we believe is Golgotha, where Jesus died. And very close to it is an ancient garden that they found in a tomb, which could very well be the tomb that Jesus was placed into. And Joseph, being a rich man, it would be very, very expensive for him to have those workers go with hammer and chisel. They didn't have any, you know, machines or drills or, um, you know, explosives to to make a tomb it was all done by hand and it would be expensive and Joseph did that and it was a tomb that had never been used before and here is Joseph he goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus so his body isn't thrown into the the garbage heap and what I find interesting that none of Jesus family went and asked for the body of Jesus isn't that interesting Mary didn't go. She was there at the cross. John took her away. I've done a lot of, you know, funerals and memorial services, and, and almost every time it's the family that takes care of the arrangements. His brothers, sisters, mom didn't go and ask for the body of Jesus. None of the disciples asked for the body of Jesus. It was all planned before the foundation of the world. It would be Joseph of Arimathea who had this tomb that had never been used. And he was a secret disciple along with Nicodemus who brought the spices. They had a plan. Joseph went to Pilate. Nicodemus had the spices. They came together. They prepared the body of Jesus. The women that were there were at a distance. They could not be there when Jesus' body was prepared. And they would give up their reputation, and they would give up their position on the council. They would give up everything because they said, we don't care. We're going to ask for the body of Jesus. And I'm sure Nicodemus understood what Jesus said in John chapter 3. That he said, Nicodemus, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as Nicodemus would see him on the cross, lifted up, he understood that he died for my sins. And they would risk everything to take care of the body of Jesus and put him into the tomb. And they rolled the stone and it sealed the tomb, and then the Romans put a seal on it with a guard. And in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, and when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, meaning that it was the Father's will to have his son suffer so that we would be with him for all eternity, those who come to faith in Jesus. And think about that. I mean, it was the Father's will to offer up his son who went freely for you and for me. And that's an incredible truth that I think we're going to spend all eternity just marveling at and, and, and just... You know, as we, we think about it, it's so incredible. But I pray that it would always impact our lives every day. But then it says that he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, that is speaking of his resurrection. He only borrowed Joseph's tomb for three days. 
And so Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he speaks about Jesus and the, and the prophecies and this is that which is written. And, and he begins to speak about uh, the prophets who spoke of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Isaiah 53 here speaking of his resurrection. Another uh, reference is in the book of Psalms and Psalm 16 that we know that David writes, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of that Jesus is going to rise from the grave. He wasn't going to be corrupted, his body there in the grave. So the Old Testament spoke of his resurrection as well. And then in verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so the, he is the propitiation for sin. We know what that word propitiation means. John used it in his first epistle twice that Jesus was the satisfaction for our sins. That is the righteous requirement from a righteous God to satisfy the penalty for your sin and my sin came through Jesus Christ who died on the cross. It is Jesus that satisfies that penalty. He made atonement for you and for me. It's the only sacrifice for sin. The righteous requirements, the satisfaction. Jesus is the just and the justifier, as we're going to see in the book of Romans. So I, I want to remind you of something, you who are a believer. God's not mad at you. Sometimes we go through life because we're not what we could be or should be. And I'm not like making excuses for us to go out and sin. We're to live in purity. We are to pursue holiness. But, but we fail. We falter. We, we're not what we could be. We're not what we should be. And there have been times in my life where I think, Lord, you must be so disgusted with me. You must be so mad at me. And he says, I'm not mad at you. But Jesus went to the cross to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for you and for me, and he loves us. Oh, yeah, he'll chasten us because he doesn't want us to, to pursue sin, continue in it. He'll convict us. I'm thankful for that conviction. It's always to bring you to the Lord. But he's not mad at you. He's not disgusted with you. His love remains with you. And if there's anything going on in your life where you're involved in sin or carnality, he's calling you to repent. He's calling you to himself. But his love remains with you. And I'm so thankful for that because there have been times where I think, Lord, you just, you just must be so disappointed in me because I don't measure up or I'm not what I think I could be or whatever. I'm, I'm fired. <laughs> right? How many times I thought I was fired? He says, no, you're not fired. I haven't lost one that the Father has given to me, Jeff, and I'm not about to start with you. You're not fired, but look to him. I know that he loves you and he's calling you to himself to live a life for him and to pursue him and to enjoy him and to know him and always go to the cross and remember the cross of Jesus Christ and his love for us and that's a real key for me. 
And in chapter 54, we see that uh, we continue here. Uh, in chapter 54, God, uh, now that we know that the Messiah came and died for our sins, he's going to, Isaiah, be speaking about. God has a plan for Israel, and this chapter speaks of that. And then in chapter 55, when we get there, that God has a plan for the Gentiles. Salvation comes to them as well. And that's one of the things that we're going to see that Paul's going to make reference to when we get to the book of Romans. And I think it's very very important for us to understand that that God has a plan for Israel the promises given to Israel he's going to bring to pass because there's a growing trend in even evangelical churches today and what is called replacement theology and replacement theology says that God is done with Israel and, and through you know with Israel has no plan for Israel and the promises that God gave to Israel has been forfeited because they, you know, handed over Jesus to be crucified. Now, they're going through a difficult period right now. Blindness has come in part to Israel, but when we get to Romans chapter 11, it is Paul that says that God cast away his people. He says, certainly not. And he speaks of the future plan for Israel, which this chapter speaks of, that God's not through with his people. And God has a plan for the church as well. Now, don't confuse that. Some do, and they come up with what's called a dual covenant. They believe that the Jews are saved just because of the covenant God made with them. And it's not in faith in Jesus Christ. That is a false teaching. There's one way to salvation, right? Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very simple statement for us to understand. So salvation comes one way through faith in Jesus Christ for Jew and Gentile. So those who come along with this dual covenant, well, the Jews are automatically saved because they're Jews, because of the covenant God made with them. That is a false teaching. And remember that John the Baptist, remember he's at the, the river, he's baptizing, and, and there the religious leaders come down and, and they're asking him questions. And John rebuked them. He said, you, you claim to be children of Abraham. Get that thought out of your mind. God could raise up children of Abraham from these very stones. And then Paul makes the case as well in Galatians, as you go through the New Testament, that Abraham, that the one who is the, father, the children of Abraham are ones of what? Faith. For Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. So these are all Bible studies that we've gone through that are important for us to understand. Are you going to get really mixed up and messed up when people come up with replacement theology or dual covenant and all these other things that they try to, to pass along and try to defend biblically, which they can't? So God has a plan for Israel. He'll restore them at the end of the tribulation period. As Paul said, their eyes will be opened up. And then in that day, all of Israel will be saved. They'll realize Zechariah chapter 12 as Jesus as their Mashiach. But they're going to go through great tribulation during that time. And they will say, where did you get those wounds when they see Jesus? And he will say, I got them in the house of my friends. 
So there's still a restoring of Israel and the promises that God has made to them that we read about in this chapter. Let's look at that. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. So uh, the people of God are going to go off into captivity because of of their idol worship and because of sin. And they're going to eventually come back. But this is speaking ultimately again of when the Lord comes back and restores the nation of Israel, when their eyes are opened up. And, and we know that, um, that it will continue to speak of that. But it's interesting that Paul quotes actually verse 1 in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul is contrasting the law and grace and they cannot coexist together. Listen, there is truly freedom that comes with the new covenant, that comes with grace, not under the law. So that's what Paul writes about there in the book of Galatians. But I do want to, to remind us as we make application, as we read this, yes, that it is speaking prophetically of Israel, but practically for you and for me, and that is that we will find ourselves being barren, if we walk in disobedience and we will be in bondage. But I also want to encourage you that perhaps you're here and maybe you feel barren in your heart. You feel dry in your heart towards the Lord. And you don't know what to do. I'm going to give you real practical advice that here Isaiah 54 does, and that is sing. Sing, O barren. Begin to worship him. And I know that can be hard when we feel dry and barren. And man, it's just like, I don't feel like it. Begin to sing. Sing to him. You remember 2 Kings chapter 3, if you've read that chapter? The, in the days of Jehoshaphat, Judah was going to go to war against the enemy. And so they... they heard from the prophet, and the prophet, they're there in the desert, and they're dry, and they're thirsty, and the prophet says, dig the ditches, and you're going to see water is going to fill them up. And they would dig the ditches, and those, those ditches would be full of water, and the next day to refresh them and to, to renew them. And they could have very easily said, what do you mean out here in the desert dig the ditches? Hey, we're out of energy. We feel dry. We're about ready to fall over. And it took some effort, and they had to make the decision that we're going to do what the Lord has commanded us to do and dig those ditches. And as they did, they found themselves, those ditches, being full of water. When we become barren vessels, even as Jesus said, for you who thirst, come to me and drink. And when you and I make the decision that I am feeling barren in my life spiritually and dry in my life, then wash yourself with the water of the word and go to the Lord personally and drink of him, the living waters that he has for you. And he promises that out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. Go to him and begin to worship and draw close to him. And in verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your codes, cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. 
So we know that the boundaries, when the Lord comes back and restores Israel, that the boundaries that were given to Abraham, that, that you're going to, Abraham, as you look out, you're going to inherit all this land from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates River, which is over in Iraq today. They've never encompassed all of that land. The closest that they got is when Solomon was ruling, but they never ruled all, all of that land. So when the Lord restores Israel, as promised to them, that their boundaries are going to expand to, to the east and to the west, even as Isaiah says is going to happen. But for us as well, that these verses here, verses 2 and 3, have meant a lot to me as well, because I think it's a word for us here at Calvary Chapel. And I think it's a word for you personally as well. That the Lord wants to enlarge the place of your tent, whatever that might mean for you. That he's not done with you yet. That he desires to use you. And to say to you tonight that the best is yet to come. In your ministry, whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's to your children and to others, the Lord wants to enlarge that. He wants to do that for us. I used to read these two verses, and, and, and I remember that I was with a, a group of believers at, at a conference, and this word was given to me, and I thought, oh, we're going to get a bigger building, and we're going to you know, expand to the east and to the west. And, and if the Lord ever does that someday... Praise God, but primarily what the Lord has spoken to me is, is that for, for you personally, for your family, for us as a church family, he's not done with us. He wants to do so much more to reach this community for Jesus Christ. And since that time, what we've been able to do is, is for the radio and live radio and and to reach out to others and, and ministry that's taken place. It, it's wonderful. And he wants to do more. He wants to do more with you. He wants to do more with me. He wants to do more with us. And I believe for us here at Calvary Chapel, the best is yet to come. And whatever that might mean for us as a church, because we are here for such a time as this, the Lord wants to use us. I don't know, maybe it's just me. You know, you ever have a little pity party? <laughs> Again, Lord, you know, I just... Because things aren't going the way that you hope or as fast as you thought or, you know, as grand as you hope it would and all of this. And there's been even times, you know, in January, it's going to be 23 years that Sue and I came up and we started the church. In 23 years, you know, after time, you start to think, I'm just the old pastor, country pastor teaching the Bible. Maybe because, again, you start reading the church growth, you know, experts that say, well, your church is going to peak at about 12 years and that's what you're going to be in, the, you know, and all the statistics and all this. And they start to think, maybe, Lord, you're kind of done with me. Maybe, maybe this is it. See, a lot of pastors can feel that way and then they kick it into cruise control. Complacency gets sluggish. And I remember just kind of praying and thinking about that and that wasn't that long ago and the Lord said I saved the best wine for last 
And I believe that's a word not just for me, but for you and for us. He saves the best wine for last. Don't give up. And don't throw in the towel. As I've always said, take that towel and wash somebody's feet. Start serving. And know that God wants to use us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, but let him do it in his timing and his way. And I'm not talking about the, you know, grand thing. Just be faithful to where God has you. Mom and dads that are raising your children. You who are ministering to your elderly folks. You who are, are ministering to those at work. You who are serving in very practical ways. Listen. He still has much for you. And you might think, I'm getting older. I don't have a lot to offer. You who are older, you have a lot of wisdom to give. I see these young people going up in the youth room and it blesses my heart and we have so much to offer to them and to serve them and to serve this community where so many people are hurting, are in the darkness, that don't know the gospel. He wants to enlarge the place of your tent and lengthen your cords, and that's not always easy because sometimes he'll take you through, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this work, but there's some things that need to go, Jeff. I'm going to break you of pride. I'm going to break you of self-reliance. I'm going to break you of self-pity. I'm going to break you of these things to where you can get your eyes on me and do the work that he wants to do. I think that maybe this is a word for somebody here tonight. That he saves the best wine for last. He's not done with you. Moses didn't begin his ministry until he was 80 years old. So I'm 57, so I'm doing good. But he wants to continue to do wonderful things with us and through us. We are here for such a time as this. You know, we got an election coming up. And we think that, you know, the election is important. And I have opinions and all of this, but we think we got, we got to, you know, save America. We got to save, you know, our country. You know what we need to do? We need to save Americans. <laughs> really, I'm serious. To come to Jesus Christ. I really believe that the hope for our nation is a revival, a great awakening. And then as Americans are saved, then we can save our country. Because our country is slipping more and more into depravity and immorality and spiritual darkness. We see it all around us, don't we? And we're concerned about it and it breaks our hearts. But for the church to be on its knees praying and reaching out to others, you got people all around you you're going to leave this place and you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to be linked to people who don't know the Lord. And I know that there are those around us that they don't want to hear about the Lord, but you continue to be a light. You continue to look for opportunities to share truth and you be open to the leading of the Lord and let him do that work that he wants to do in you and through you. 
because he wants to enlarge your territory. He wants to, to stretch out the cords, and stretching it out isn't always easy. He wants to stretch you so he can use you. You are here for such a time as this. He has you placed where you can be light and truth to others. And he saves the best wine for last. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for... Lord, these words that uh, we didn't get through what we wanted to, but Lord, I praise an encouragement for all of us. That Lord, that you desire to use us to enlarge the place of our tent, to lengthen our cords, to strengthen our stakes as we find ourselves planted. And I pray that you would do that with us, with us individually. That you would do that with us as a church. Father, that we would be a light. That we would share your love. That we would reach out to a community. That there's so much darkness and trouble and difficulty in hurting people. We see them every day. And we have opportunity to minister, but sometimes we get so caught up in our own thing. We get cut up, cut, caught up in the cares of life, and we all got cares of life, but it then begins to strangle our desire. That we are here to worship you for your good pleasures. To be used... Your son is coming back soon. Jesus is going to come back for the church, I believe, anytime. We don't know the day or the hour, but we are definitely in the last days. And there isn't a whole lot of time to be messing around. I sense there's an urgency. Because even as Jeremiah, as he gave warning to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, when the destruction came, he says, Summer's over and harvest is in and we're not saved. So in this day of grace, whatever time that we have and whatever time that we have, Lord, we want to be vessels for you to give truth and not be ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. And Lord, those of us that are here tonight maybe feeling a little barren and dry spiritually that we would worship. Go home and worship you because we saw in Isaiah 53, Jesus went to the cross, dying for our sins, was crushed, bruised for us, and took the iniquity of us all upon himself. So Lord, I just pray that once we're establishing your love more, that we would express that love to others. So, Father, I thank you for tonight. So fill us up, dry vessels. As we're washed with the water of the word, as we worship you, as we go to you, may we leave this place encouraged in every way, Lord. I thank you for all the people that are here. Lord, we need the word of God. We need to be in the scriptures. We need to be strong in you and a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
So, Lord, thank you. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. In Jesus' name.